has been born and bred here in Southern California, particularly here in Costa Mesa. I just laugh every time we start at, by the way, we start at 10 a.m. And at 10 a.m. there's like four people and they're usually the ones who are visiting the church who actually listen to the fact that we start at 10 a.m. They're like, interesting, all right. And then by the time we're finished with worship, it's like, where am I going to sit? There's no place to sit. It's just funny to me. Not really. Um, before we get started, there's one thing that I would be completely remiss if I, if I did not um, do, and that is, Bobby, can you stand up for a second? Please. Please. Okay, this is Bob. Come up here for a second. In fact, come here, Bob. <laughs> Bob has been um, not only at Lighthouse far longer than I have, but he has been one of those, those smiling faces greeting you guys every week. Um, and he is a mainstay here at this church, and I'm really grateful for him, and it is with a, a heavy heart that I say that this is Bob's last weekend here. Now, it's good reason he got married. Yeah, yeah. And she just so happens to live in New York. So Bob is going to be doing a long drive. I'm not sure that these clothes are going to work so well. I am proud of you for wearing closed-toed shoes. That's a step in the right direction, but there is a hole right in that one right there. So we will pray that, that Bob either gets some pants or that the, he gets some hobbit hair on his legs or something so he can withstand the elements. But I just wanted, I wanted to pray for Bob for protection as he drives out, for, uh, for God's hand of blessing on his marriage um, as he just begins a new life out there in New York. And you know this is home. You know you can always come back and we'll, we'll pick on you more then. So if you just... <laughs> If you bow your heads and extend a hand, let's pray over Bob. Father, I thank you for my friend. I thank you for the blessing he is. I thank you for the ways that you have used him, for the ways that you have guided him in his path, for the, for the blessing of his new wife and family. And I ask for your hand of protection now as he leaves the comfort of Costa Mesa and heads out to New York. I pray for your protection as he drives. And all along the way, would you be with him and guide him? And then ultimately, we ask that you would glorify yourself in his marriage. Bless him as he begins a new life out there in New York. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. All right, so. That's always sad. And, and, and I, I believe about six months ago, I put a moratorium on people leaving the church. And so it doesn't surprise me he's the first one to break it. But um, yeah, you guys can't go anywhere. Okay, just letting you know, it's at least six more months before anybody else is allowed to move out of state. <laughs> so you'll have to come through me. Uh, <laughs> just playing. Uh, last week, we began a new series called His Story. And the whole point of this series is to explore the grand narrative that runs all throughout Scripture. Because when we, when we pick up our Bible, oftentimes as we read it, we, we get the impression that it's just a whole bunch of of disparate stories, a whole bunch of little stories about a guy named David and a guy named Job and, you know, a, a woman named Ruth. And then, you know, you have the disciples who are wandering around. And we may begin to think that the Bible is just a bunch of little stories that are compiled in this. And, and yet when we step back and begin to take in the entire Bible within its entire context, we'll realize that there is a thread that runs all throughout it. That although these small stories do reveal kind of the lives of these people. It, in the grand story, it is about a, a God, a father, in pursuit of his prodigal children. That's what the Bible is. And as with any story, it has a beginning. What we want to do this morning is we want to explore the beginning of that story. You know, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. We're going to be there today. We're going to camp out in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. If you 
don't have a Bible, there's probably one in a seat front in front of you. I would encourage you to follow along today in a Bible, whether it's on your phone, in, a, in, in book form, whatever. Just follow along today uh, because we are going to just be going line by line through Genesis 1 and 2. The book of Genesis, Genesis actually means origins. And we get that term, Genesis, from the first Hebrew word in the book of Genesis, a Hebrew word that we translate in the beginning. And so that's where it comes from. And, and every single culture that I know of has a creation story, has an explanation for how the world came to be. Every culture, including our 21st century culture. Now, you know, here in, in Southern California, we kind of have put our nose up in the air when we talk about creation stories because we, our creation narrative is one that has been developed by science. We have the scientific method to thank for our understanding of the world. And yet, even that, as we're going to get into this this morning, you're going to begin to realize that even our scientific explanation requires just as much faith as any other creation narrative that's come before it. The, the question of how the world began. Well, you know, it, the funny thing is we set up science and God almost to be two competitors, two things that are mutually exclusive, right? You either believe in God, the God of Scripture, and have faith, or you believe in science. As if science is somehow able to disprove God. Even the way that science is presented in schools, all throughout school, when, I, when we had science class, we would open this big book. It was bigger than any other book that we had. It had really glossy pictures, and it was almost as if science was presented as universal, obvious, you just have to look at the world, and there it is, so obviously it's true, and never changing. It is always this case. And yet, sci all science is, is the best explanation that we have of the evidence that we have been able to measure, right? We have tools, we have looked around our world, we've measured things, and we've taken that empirical evidence, and we have tried to explain what that means about our world. That's all science is. And as we develop new tools, as we're able to measure things in a much, much more minuscule way, all of a sudden our understanding of how things are and what is changes. There's probably no better uh, illustration of that as, as around this question, how did the world begin? Up to a hundred years ago, scientists were universally sure that the world and the universe were static. And what I mean by that is they were convinced that the universe had very definite parameters and it never changed. The only changes that took place is maybe a, a sun is born here or dies out over here and it affects kind of the, the, the little ecosystem around that solar system. But beyond that, the universe was fixed and set, had always been like that, was eternal. That was science's best understanding. And then in 1916, as Albert Einstein was developing his general theory of relativity, in which he was looking at the effect of gravity on the rest of the universe, he began to come into conflict with this belief that the world was static because Einstein realized that if the world is not changing, it's static, and yet there's gravity that is exerting a, a pulling force, then the universe should have collapsed upon itself millennia before that. And yet that hadn't happened. And so he had one of two options. One, 
you question the belief of the day that the world is, uh, the universe is static and, uh, and never changing, or two, there's obviously something he doesn't understand, and so he's just going to in insert something into his general theory of relativity that allows it to remain constant, and so that's what he chose to do. Rather than challenging the beliefs of his day, he inserted the cosmological constant into his general theory of relativity and basically suggested there's something out there, a force that causes the universe not to collapse on itself. I don't know what it is, but it's there. It's got to be because the world hasn't collapsed on itself. And so he missed an opportunity to be the first one to say, hey, the universe may not necessarily be universally constant. It may not be static. Thirteen years later, a guy up in Berkeley named Edward Hubble is looking up into the night sky, and he, and he recognizes something. I'm not going to go into all the details of how, but basically he discovered something that now scientists universally have come to accept. And that is that the universe is not static. In fact, it is expanding at a radically rapid rate. And, and, and so, you know, and when we, when we think about it expanding, it implies that there must have been a beginning at some point. Think about this for a moment. Imagine that you were standing on the edge of a pond, and you open your eyes, and you see that there are rings in the pond about 20 feet apart that are slowly expanding. And as you watch, you see the rings continue to move out. Now, you, you would know, even though you haven't seen the moment when it began, you would know that at some point, there was something that caused those rings to start, right? And you would know that what you're seeing now is the effects of those rings continuing to move out. Science recognizes that that's kind of how the, the universe works. It is expanding further and further out, kind of like these, these rings in a pond. And they have been able to go, okay, well, if that's the case, then at some point in the past, although we, were in, we weren't around at the time, there must have been something to start those rings. The universe must have come from somewhere and begun very, very small and has just been expanding out ever since. We've come to, they've come to term this the Big Bang. And this is science's best explanation of how the universe has come into existence. Our, their best explanation at this point. Um, and, and with a lot of explanations, you know, it, it raises more questions than it does answers. Probably the biggest question that the Big Bang theory raises is, well, what caused the Big Bang to bang in the first place? Where did it come from? What is the force behind that? How did all of the matter in the universe come into existence? I was, I was watching a special that the Discovery Channel put out about three years ago in which they interviewed astronomers and um, theoretical physicists who are trying to explain for the masses, for us, just what the Big Bang really is. And so I want us to watch this clip. This is from the Discovery Channel, their, their special called How the Universe Works. And the guy that we're going to see up on the screen here is a theoretical physicist attempting to explain how the universe came into being. Let's take a look at this. I, I, I watched that, and I just kind of was smiling like, seriously? That's the greatest mystery? That's awesome. I know the answer. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, th this is, in case you think that maybe this theoretical physicist is the only one who's trying to make the point that everything that is came out of nothing, this is a, uh, a quote from a an astronomer named Heather Cowper in her book, The Big Bang. Can we throw that quote up there? She says, Our universe probably came into existence not only from nothing, but from nowhere. 
In other words, science's best explanation for what is is that it simply winked into existence all of the matter, and you heard him correctly when he said all of the matter in the universe, all of the galaxies, every planet, all of the power of the stars contained in a speck smaller than a grain of sand, even much, much smaller than that. And it somehow came from nowhere with almost infinite density and then it just exploded and has been expanding ever since. That is the best explanation that science has to give as of right now. And what I find so fascinating is that it flies in the face of the very laws of science, such as the first law of thermodynamics, which states that absolutely nothing can be created out of nothing. And yet they're saying everything was created specifically out of nothing. And yet what, what you know, scientists are trying to explain, Scripture has been articulating for centuries. The very first verse of the, Greek bi uh, of the Hebrew Bible says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that word created is a term that means to take something out of nothing, to make something out of absolutely nothing. He spoke it into existence. And so the Bible answers a question that, or that, that scientists have been wrestling with. There's another quote that I want to throw up here. Can you throw the next one up here? This is one's by Robert Jastrow, who's the founder of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. He's kind of a smart dude. And he said this, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. The, the, the part where the guy goes, it's you can't put into words what, what, what's going on in that moment of creation. It's like, well, yeah, you can. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is that mysterious force, I would propose, that God is that mysterious force that science cannot explain how something, everything, can come from absolutely nothing. And what we want to do this morning is we want to we want to look at how this, say that, we want to look at how this story begins. We want to look at the beginning of the story as it is laid out in Scripture. And I want to point out one thing before we begin, and that is the Bible is not a science book. It is not a science textbook like you would read in, in school. So we need to read it with different eyes. Rather than treating it like a, a science text, that attempts to explain scientific questions, this is seeking to do something radically different. It is seeking to explain to humanity who God is that has created them and what our relationship with him is. That's what this is seeking to do, and it's going to become even more evident as we, get to get, as we get into these first two chapters of Genesis. It is not seeking to explain the scientific questions that scientists would like to, po uh, to pose to it. Thus, we're going to run into some frustrating questions like, well, is the universe six days, or I'm sorry, 6,000 years old as one medieval um, monk believes? Because what he did is he took the, the books, he took all of the Bible, and he began to go back through all of the people that are described to have lived in here, all the generations, and add up all the time that they were alive. And then he, he kind of stepped back and added that all up and said, well, it means that the universe and the world must be about 6,000 years old. Or is 
science correct when it says, well, the world is more like 16 billion years old? Which one's right? And I would simply suggest that we don't want to press the scripture to give us a specific date on when creation happened. It doesn't set out to do that. I also want to point out that to God, a day is as 10,000 years and 10,000 years is a day. Time is a construct that he created and he is able to work within and outside of that. We also don't necessarily know how much time has elapsed because look at this very first verse. It says, in the beginning, you're on probably page one for most of you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now there could be Billions of years that take place between that time and then the second verse where God is now said to be hovering over the deep of the earth because according to science, everything was kind of created. It was out there and then stuff started to coalesce and form into planets and that took a, a great amount of time. And scripture is not suggesting that that time doesn't exist. It's just not talking about it because that's not the point of this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we're going to see that, that it begins to talk about that creation narrative. Now, there are people, this is way above my pay grade. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on trying to, to talk about is the earth, you know, what, did God create in six days, like literal 24-hour periods, or did it take place over eons and eons? Because quite honestly, this is not my area of expertise. There are smarter people that have spoken to it. One of those people is a guy named Gerald Schroeder. He is both a, a physicist as well as a theologian. And this book, The Science of God, explains a way that we can understand both the, the Genesis creation in six days as well as, um, you know, a much older universe than just a 6,000-year-old planet. He actually does it, explains how those two things can coexist. A and if this, which is a little bit academic, is a little too meaty for you, then there is a movie that they have made called The Genesis Code. It's on Netflix. It's available for you to watch. I watched this, and I was kind of, you know, it's like my mother-in-law always gets me to watch these things. I'm just like, this is so hallmark and so boring. And I started watching it, and it starts out a little bit hokey about a guy and a girl, and they're, you know, kind of like flirting with one another. But in the middle of this silly movie is this unbelievably well-done explanation of how the days of creation actually correspond with the scientific breakdown of how things came into being. So that's all I'm going to say about that. If you're interested in, in pursuing the question of is the, is the world 6,000 years old or 16 billion years old, I encourage, I'd point you to those two things. Beyond that, let's just keep going because I don't want to get too fixated on things that really have nothing to do with what the author of Genesis was trying to do. That's what I want to focus on this morning. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. <clears throat> now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over these waters. We see that God has called everything into existence, but it's still in chaotic form. It is not, at this point, habitable. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. We see at the very beginning a God who can not only call things into existence, but now, like this divine artist, begins to form and shape and mold the things that the, the, the matter that he's created into specific things. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. Then God said, 
Let there be a vault between the waters that separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water above the vault from the water below the vault. So you have the sky that he creates. And the, the, the clouds and the rain and all those things are above it. And then the waters below, the seas. And it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. This is going to be a frame that we are going to hear again and again in the first chapter of Genesis. Like this divine artist, he, he's molding and shaping and calling things into existence and, and then kind of putting them in order where he wants them. And then he steps back and he kind of looks at his work and goes, oh, that's good. Yeah, and, oh, okay, and then over here. And he's just having fun ordering things and bringing order to the chaos that is our world. I also want to point out that from the perspective of the writer of Genesis, it's a terrestrial perspective. He's not giving us the view of the whole universe. He's giving us a view from the ground of the earth. Because again, the book of Genesis deals with our interaction with our God, our relationship with him, not with the whole universe. He's not explaining about whether there was other planets that were formed. It doesn't go into any of those kind of things. Skip down, if you will, to verse 26. We are now in day six. God has created plants. He's created the sun and stars and moon and set them in their place so that they, they bring order. And here's an amazing thing. It, there's a, a movie out called This Privileged Planet that I absolutely love. It talks about the unique setting of the earth. And it says if the earth was just a little bit closer to the sun, we would be nothing but a barren ball of rock with no ability for water to, to be on it. If we were just a little bit further away, just a little bit, we would utterly freeze. We would be nothing but a ball of ice. If we had no moon, we would have no tide changes. And thus our world would be stagnant and life would not be able to exist in the sea. The way that our planet is situated is so perfect as to be almost astronomically impossible for it to have come about by chance. And yet, here we are. So something has taken place. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. I'm going to stop right there for a second. Now, theologians go, well, is God talking to himself? Is God talking to angels? I would suggest that God is speaking into the Godhead. Remember, we, uh, scripture will reveal that there is one God, but he's in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. He lives in a relationship with and in and of himself. And in this instance, he's talking into this God and saying, let's create man in our image. Well, does that mean then that God has two arms and two legs and, and nostrils and eyes and stuff? I don't want to press the meaning of that. Theologians have tried to do that. Scripture also talks about the fact that God is spirit, so I don't necessarily want to suggest that God is some big, bushy, whited, bearded old dude up in heaven, you know, kind of looking down on us. I don't think Scripture is trying to explain that. Now, people have definitely pointed out that we're created in God's image in a lot of different ways. For instance, God is created, and he's given us the ability to be creative. God is a moral God. In fact, all morality comes from him, and he's given us the ability to be moral creatures, to think about the ramifications of our choices. If, if he didn't create, if we're simply random chance, then morality is out the window. It becomes arbitrary. There becomes no universal morals like it's wrong to kill. 
we were created for community in the same way that God is in community within, within and of himself. There are things like that we are like God, but I don't want to press it to say this is the sum total of them because that's not what Scripture's talking about. You see, it, it helps to understand a little bit about the Hebrew culture, the Middle Eastern culture. When you had a king that would conquer a territory and was claiming it for his own, he would set up statues of himself in that area, an image of himself that reminded all of the people around I am the owner and the ruler of this place. Also, rulers would quite often identify a person who would then go into that place and be their representative in that land, ruling in that king's place. This representative would not have authority in and of himself. His authority would be one that was bestowed upon him by the king. But that authority, that responsibility gave him a dignity because if the, if the people rejected his leadership, if the people disrespected him, it was tantamount to them rejecting and disrespecting the king. And so there is a, a, a sense of uh, value and purpose behind being that king's representative. And I want to point out here, as we keep reading now, in verse 26, that that, that kind of responsibility, that kind of leadership and ownership is exactly what is being described here in verse 26. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they might rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. In other words, we are God's we were made in God's image so that we represent him in creation. We become God's hands and feet in creation, caring for his creation. As we're going to see, that does not, even though we are at the top of created beings, at the top of the creature list, that does not give us the right to be cruel or capricious uh, with the rest of the animals or with creation. It doesn't give us the right just to use it to benefit ourselves. Because remember, we are his representatives. Our power and our purpose is derived from our king, from our God. But there's a dignity that is bestowed upon us in being made in his image. Something that for those of you in small groups, you're going to look at this week as we look at a couple of verses from the rest of the Bible that actually uh, uh, kind of talk about the dignity that we have as human beings because we're made in his image. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I want to stop for just a second and point out both men and women. Ladies, you are not a secondary status. You, just like us guys, are made in God's image. We often talk about God being father, but he also has maternal personality as well. Now, this was definitely being written into a patriarchal society, so it makes sense that we he would be described as God the Father. But there are passages that talk about how God wants to wrap his arms around his people like a mother hen gathers his chicks. And that's a nurturing type of aspect that you ladies represent far better than we guys do for the most part. Both men and women are created in the image of God. Both men and women have been entrusted with the care of God's creation. Moving on. And I know I'm going quickly. I know it's going to feel like a theological fire hose. We'll try to wrap it up at the end. But the point is, I just want to kind of work through this so that you guys can begin to see what the writer of Genesis is actually trying to do here in the first couple of chapters. Verse 28. God blessed them, the man and the woman, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. We're his representatives. That is our responsibility. Verse 29. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. I find it very interesting that at the beginning, God actually created a creation that was vegetarian. It's not until Genesis 9, after the fall and after the flood, that God finally says to Noah, kill and eat. I do take solace in the fact that he did say kill and eat because I like meat. Moving on. <laughs> Verse 31. Remember, God, this divine artist. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were comp completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Now I want to stop there because that word rested seems to insinuate that God may have been tired. As if God can get tired. But, but if we look at the verse, it says, since he had finished all the work that he had set out to do, he rested, and all that, the word could also be translated, he ceased from his labors. He stopped. That's a better understanding of that term, I would say, um, is that he didn't need to rest. He chose to stop because he'd finished bringing the world at that point into the order that he wanted to, to give to it. Verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy or set apart from other days. And there was even, uh, uh, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The Sabbath is one of those things that for the Israelites became a defining marker. Later on, we're going to look a little bit deeper into it. But basically, the Sabbath is God modeled it for us. And he said, you know, this is a good rhythm. I'm going to establish this rhythm for my people. Six days you can work. But on that seventh day, I want to challenge you to stop. To stop striving. To stop thinking that you are ultimately in control and cease from your labor. One, you're human. You're finite. You can't keep going forever. You're going to wear out. So you do need to rest. But secondly, this will be a day that you reconnect with me, your God, and recognize that you're my representative. You are not God yourself. And then reconnect with one another. Now, for those of you who have never tried the Sabbath or want to know more about it, in the back, I've got a few of these Sabbath packets. This is something we did a little while ago when we were going through the, the Ten Commandments series. And this will both explain what the Sabbath is about and guide you through preparing and then observing a Sabbath for your home. So if you're interested and want to try that, I would encourage you to grab that packet there. What we have just gone through right now, up through verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, is almost like broad brushstrokes. It's like the bird's eye view of creation. The writer of Genesis, whom we believe is Moses, is just kind of talking about how God created, spoke things into existence. But now, in verse 4 of chapter 2, he goes back to the sixth day. And he now focuses in on the creation of man. Because this really is the crowning achievement of God's creation. And really, it has a lot to do with us as humanity. The whole point of this is God's interaction with mankind. And so he's going to focus in on the second half of day six. In the first half, we've seen that God created all the animals and the birds. Now he's going to focus on the creation of man. And we're going to find very quickly that there are some distinct differences, even in the language that's being used and in the way God approaches us as opposed to the rest of his creation. Verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. 
when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. I want to stop there for a second. In Genesis 1, God has been referred to with the Hebrew word Elohim. It is a generic term for God. It's a term that was used of other nations of their gods. Just talking about God, Elohim. But here in Genesis chapter 2, we get a very different title. We get the Lord God. And that term that's translated Lord is the same name that God gave to Moses during the burning bush. When Moses said, you want me to go and tell Pharaoh to let his people go, but if, if he asks who said and, and uh, under what authority I've been given, who should I say sent me? I am that I am. So tell him Yahweh, he is has sent you. Yahweh is the term that we see translated as the Lord. And in your Bibles, anytime you come across the Lord in capital letters, that is the name Yahweh, the personal name of God. Here at the very beginning of Genesis, we see that as we are now talking about the interaction of mankind and the creation of mankind with their God, it's a much more personal way of referring to God. And we're going to see that that, per that personal kind of aspect runs throughout this chapter of Genesis. Verse 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then... The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He heats the man up and molds him out of the dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being or a living soul. How has God created up to this point? All through chapter one, what was his mode of creation? He would simply speak words and it became so. Could he have done that in this instance? Absolutely, but instead we see God kneeling down, getting his hands dirty and bringing the dust together, and then leaning down and breathing breath from his own lungs, whether he has lungs or not. I mean, I don't want to press this metaphor too much, but breathing life into the first man. It is intimate. It is personal. You, be you begin to recognize that there's a difference between this creation and all the rest of the creation. Verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden. Eden simply means delight. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then it talks about where this garden is. It talks about four rivers that kind of water it. It's really not important to the conversation we're having. So let's jump down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. I want to point out here, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. We often think of work as a product of the fall, right? Ugh. You know, Adam sinned, he ate the apple or the, the fruit. Therefore, God cursed the ground and out through the sweat of my brow that I'm going to have to toil to make it. And we think that work is a product of the fall. And certainly our work has been affected by the fall. We'll look at how next week. But I want to point out that work is not a product of the fall. We were designed in part to work. We, from the very beginning, God intended for us to be stewards of his creation, taking care of his good creation. We're caretakers. That was our role and our responsibility as his representatives on earth. Work is not a product of the fall, but it has certainly been affected by it. And we'll look at that next week. Verse 16. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, I find it fascinating that in God's design, he chose, and we have to understand, he chose to put this tree in the garden. He chose to put something that was off limits in the garden. Now, some people might say, man, he set us up to fail. I wouldn't go that far. But I would say he certainly gave us the opportunity to do so. He gave us the ability to choose. We are going to look deeply into that point next week, why he would choose to do that and the effects of that. But I just wanted to point out from the very beginning, God chose to place a means for us to disobey him in the Garden of Eden. Verse 18. We're going to spend a lot of time on this next section. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, this is the first time that God has pointed out that anything in his creation is not good. Everything else has been great. This is the first time he goes, ah, this isn't good that the man would be alone in his responsibility of caring for my creation. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, that term helper, ezer in Hebrew, a lot of people have used that word because we know the punchline that woman is ultimately made to be that suitable helper. And people have used that term to try to put women into a subservient role to men and say, you are a lesser being than man because you were simply a helper. We kind of think of it as a second-rate word. But in fact, when you look at Scripture, there's another person that's called our helper in Scripture. God. He is called, in, 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 the, in the book of Psalms, he is our ever-present helper, Ezer, in our time of need. Now, I don't think that it's suggesting that God is a second-rate helper, is he? No. In, in a better understanding of that term, suitable helper, might be a suitable partner to the man in this process of taking care of God's creation, in, in stewarding it, in, and having dominion over it. In no way is it saying the woman is a second-rate status. It's saying she is a fitting partner to him. So God says, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. Verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all of the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. It's interesting that God chose to do this because up until this point, we've seen that every time God creates something, he, had, he himself names it. He calls the light day, the darkness he calls night. He calls the, the expanse sky. And when he gathers up the waters, he calls that sea and he calls the dry land ground. The act of naming something is an act of taking lordship or an act of, of, of taking responsibility for that thing. And yet now he's entrusting the man to name those creatures as a way of allowing the man to become, to step into the role of being his representative. If you really are going to be his, my representative, if you really are going to be the caretaker and steward of my, my creation, then you go ahead and take the responsibility of naming these creatures. So that's one reason why he chooses to have the man do it. But the second reason is that we are in the process of trying to figure out a suitable helper for the man. And as each creature is paraded in front of Adam, and he stepped back because names are important. In the Hebrew culture, names are tremendously important. They say something about that person. Which is probably why so many people's names were changed as they came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But that's another discussion. Um, so he steps back. And as each creature is paraded before him, he's almost trying to find the essence of what makes this creature unique and then gives it a name that points that out. 
And as he's doing that, he begins to realize that there's something radically different between himself and these creatures. They're different, and none of these creatures would ever make a suitable helper, a partner, in the process of taking stewardship over God's creation. And Adam begins to realize that as it's going on. We read now in verse 20. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found as he's naming each of these creatures. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. Now, I promised Kathy I wouldn't make the statement that, you know, the woman was taken from a part of his side right next to the heart where all the emotions lie. Therefore, you women are more naturally emotional. And you've taken half of our emotions away, which is why we guys are not emotional. I promised her I wouldn't say that, so I didn't say that. (laughs) So the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, hubba, hubba, hubba. Right? I believe that's the original Hebrew. Now he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. In the original language, woman sounds like man. Even the name itself, as in English, sounds very similar. Whoa, man. (laughs) Verse 24. This is why, because the woman was taken from man, because she is both made in God's image, but also possesses the similar qualities of a man and yet is different from him. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Now, in Middle Eastern countries, in Hebrew culture, the family and the tribe were the most important identifying factors of somebody. Now, we live in a very individualistic society. Our society says, you're not defined by where you came from. You're defined by what you've done, which is why we often ask one another, hey, what do you do? It's one of the first questions we ask because we identify people based upon what we do, not where we come from. But in Hebrew culture, people were defined by their family and their tribe. So I wouldn't be Eric Wayman, pastor. I'd be Eric, son of Ken, or I'd be Eric of the Wayman family. And everything that I do reflects upon my family. Family was so utterly important. And yet, this this unity of the man and woman is so important that it supersedes even that family bond. That doesn't mean that they cease to be part of a family or cease to be part of a tribe, but that becomes their closest, strongest, and most intimate bond. Whenever I do weddings, I always kind of point this out and say, you don't cease to be part of your family, but you need to start thinking of yourselves as a unified pair. The choices you make no longer just affect yourself, but one another and the rest of your family. You need to think about it that way. And then the chapter 2 ends on this very interesting statement. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Yeah, this is before the fall. Yeah, this is before shame entered the world. But it's a picture of innocence. A picture of being nakedly vulnerable before one another and before their God and feeling no need to hide, no no need to cover up, no need to pretend to be something other than they are. It is a picture of perfect relationship. That is the way that God intended it. Now, as we're going to see next week, that doesn't last very long. That innocence 
that ability to be nakedly vulnerable before one another is very quickly marred. But that was God's intention for us, that we would not live lives of individuality, that we would not live lives pretending to be something other than we are, but that we would be known and would know one another, and that we would be known by him and not be ashamed of that fact. So let's step back for just a moment and look at what we've looked at this morning. I know there's a lot, and for some of you, it may feel like you just, you know, drunk from a theological fire hose. A lot of information. And maybe some of the things we've talked about today don't even feel like they, they have a place. You don't really know what to do with them. It will become more clear as we go on in this story how those pieces fit. It's kind of like watching the beginning of a movie. That's all we're getting this morning, the beginning of the movie. There are pieces that are going to be stirred up that we will find fit later on. But here's what we've seen so far. Everything that is has been created by God. He is the only being that was before time and space began. He spoke everything into existence. It is by his power that the universe exists. It's by his power that the universe is held together. God is the reason. But... This God was not content to simply stay back and like a divine watchmaker, create this world, wind it up, and let it go. He decided to get personally involved in his creation. He decided to create a representative for himself, mankind. We have a unique position in all of creation in that we are his image bearers. We we are his representatives, his stewards, his caretakers of his good creation. And as such, it's not a a license to use the world any way that we want. We're his stewards. We are tasked with the responsibility of caring for his good creation. Of caring for one another. Of treating it with respect. Not with cruelty or capriciousness. Furthermore, we were not created to oversee and take care of the world by ourselves. We were created to do life in community with one another and with him. And although sin has marred that, the design is still the same. We were created to be known and to know one another. We were created to be known by our God. He loves us. He chose to create us. He didn't have to. He chose to. And I want you to recognize that your identity, many of us identify ourselves based upon what we do. Many of us identify ourselves based upon our mistakes or upon our bank account, or whatever, any other things, whatever success is, or whatever failure is, we often define ourselves by those things. And I want to simply point out that our identity ought to be derived by the fact that we have been created in God's image. Despite what you might think, you, you are not a mistake, and you are not without extreme value. But your value isn't derived by what you do or what, by what you've done. Your value is derived by who calls you to them. And that is the message that I want us to get, not only today, but all throughout Scripture, that God chose to create us, that we have a uniquely personal and powerful relationship with the creator and sustainer of everything. And he loves us so much that as we're going to see, he pursues us in spite of our rebelliousness. We have a God who desires relationship with us and who will pursue that at all costs. 
to invite the worship team to come up. But if you'd bow your heads with me. I'm just going to pray. Father, I thank you. (laughs) I thank you for the breath in our lungs. I thank you for the regularity of the sun. That it is at just the right distance that it doesn't scorch us. And that it is not so far away that we freeze. I thank you that you have created us in your image. We don't fully even understand what that means, but we do recognize the responsibility that comes with that. We get to be your representatives, not only to our neighbors who don't bend a knee to you, who don't recognize that you are their creator, but to the rest of the world. We are your representatives. We are an extension of your hands. And I thank you that you are intimately involved in our lives, that you don't just stand back like some divine watchmaker who wound the world up and now watches it spin out of control. Would you help us to recognize our place in your creation? Would you help us to recognize our purpose and what you're calling us to uniquely? Would you be glorified in our lives? May we represent you well. We thank you for the grace that you shower upon us in those ways that we fall short. And I thank you, God, that we were not designed to be lifeless. We are called to do life with one another, to be known and to know. I thank you for my family, my friends here this morning, God, that we get to do life together. And now we just want to worship you as the creator the sustainer, and ultimately the Lord over everything. It is for you that we live. For your name's sake. Jesus, in your holy name.